So today we're going to be talking a lot about discovering your purpose, and we're in our series, We Are Core Church, and we're finding out who we are as a church. And it's good every once in a while, church, for you to stop and just take a moment to figure out who you are. Because, and this is true not just of a church, but just in life in general, if you don't know who you are, then you don't know where you're going. And sometimes you need to figure out first who you are before you can figure out where you're going. And man, we believe that God has some great things in store for us as a church. We believe God has great things in store for you. But part of that process is starting to figure out, God, who am I? What have you created me to be? And so we've been taking uh, the last few weeks, and we're going to take one more week, and we're figuring out who are we? When we say we are core church, what does that mean? Who are we as a church? And it's just been a great road of discovery as we figure out we're a place of hope, we're a place of healing, we're a place of peace, we're a place of purpose. And that's who God has called us to be. Man, there's churches on every block in this city, but I believe every church is called by God just to occupy a little bit different of a space, you know, and, and each church kind of has its mission and its niche. And we're figuring out what's our space, what's the, what's the area and the hill God's called us to take, that mountain that God's called us to climb. And so that's what this series has been about, We Are Core Church. So as we've been doing this, we've been looking through our four core values. And so we're going to put those core values up on the screen. And I would just love for you guys to read these values with me as we remind ourselves what these are. Our first value is this, we find hope as we connect our hearts in worship. Our next value is we receive healing as we offer our souls in surrender. We gain peace as we renew our minds in relationship, and we discover purpose as we engage our neighbors through serving. Now, the last two weeks, we've looked at those first two. We find hope as we connect our hearts in worship. We receive healing as we offer our souls in surrender. Well, today, if you're a super organized, like everything has to have its box in its place, it's going to freak you out for a second because we're going to skip number three for today and we're going to go to number four. So we're going to do them out of order. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through. We're going to do them out of order this week, and we're going to skip verse. We're going to skip the third one for now. It's kind of like if you grew up in church singing hymns, you always skipped verse three. I don't know why we always skip verse three. I don't know what verse three did so wrong. It's less inspired than verses one, two, and four. We never sang verse three. We're going to do that this week. We're not singing verse three this week, so we're going to skip a piece. We're going to talk about that next week, but this week we're going to talk about we discover purpose as we engage our neighbors through serving. And throughout this series, we've been looking at the book and the story of Jeremiah. In fact, we've been reading through it together as a church, and if you've been reading Jeremiah as a church uh, with us as we read through it together as a church, you've quickly discovered Jeremiah is a heavy book. Man, that is, that is a depressing read. That, that is not, this is not something you want as a quick pick-me-up. This is, Jeremiah is not that kind of book. In fact, if you haven't checked it out yet, on our God Time page, if you go to uh, our website and go to the God Time page, there's a video on there that kind of gives some context to the book of Jeremiah. I really encourage you to watch that video even before you dive into the book of Jeremiah because if not, you're going to get through the first four chapters and be like, I'm out. I'm done. I can't do this. I don't know why. And why is this even in the Bible? I don't know. I'm so depressed. But watch that video. It'll help lend some context to when Jeremiah was written and why it was written in the way that it was. So today we're going to be in Jeremiah again. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 1 today, in Jeremiah chapter 1. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 4 through 8. We're going to put this up on the screen. We already put it up on the screen here. Jeremiah 4, 1 through 8, or 1, 4 through 8 says, The Lord gave me this message. I knew you. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. O sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. The Lord replied, don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. 
and don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Today we're going to be talking about core value number four, that we find purpose when we engage our neighbors through serving. And purpose is one of these things everyone is looking for. For purpose, everyone tries to figure out what is my purpose in life? What is the thing that I'm here to do? What is this thing that gives me fulfillment? What is the thing that gives my life meaning? And it's such a big question that oftentimes we can fall short of the goal of answering that question. And this is why it's so easy for us as a people, and especially in the culture that we live in, it's so consumerism driven, it's so materialistic driven. I said that totally wrong, but you guys are with me. You know, it's, it's, it's driven by materialism that it's easy for us to put our purpose in other things that, that fall short of meeting that goal of fulfilling us. It's easy for us to try to put our fulfillment or our purpose or our meaning in things like the car we drive or the, the clothes we wear, or the neighborhoods we live in, or the schools that our kids go to, or the jobs that we have. And we put our identity and we put our security and our purpose all of a sudden becomes these things. But the, the issue with that is that If we look to anything short of what God's plan for our purpose is, it's always going to leave us unfulfilled. It's always going to leave us empty. It's always going to leave us dry because how can a temporal thing fulfill an eternal need? How can something that that was created by man, that was created by, by us, the creation, fulfill a need that only the creator was meant to fulfill, that only an eternal thing can fulfill? And so, so oftentimes we fall short of the goal of, of discovering and figuring out our purpose. Well, here at Core Church, we fully believe that everyone's purpose is found in the greatest commandment that Jesus gave. You know, the great commandment found in Matthew, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second part is equally as important. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. See, I believe that everyone has a general purpose and a specific purpose. And if you're here today and you call yourself a Christ follower, then everyone who's under that umbrella, you have a general purpose. And that general purpose is this. It's to love your neighbor as you love yourself. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. As much as we would love for that not to apply maybe to Jill in accounting or that neighbor down the street that you don't like that, you know, never mows his yard or plays his music too loud or that person in your family that's kind of weird, you know, love your neighbor as yourself except for that person. Jesus does not give us a hall pass on this. He does not give us a way out. He says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And for all of us here, In this place, if you're a Christ follower, if you call yourself a Christian, then every single one of us is are supposed to live to that goal, supposed to live that our purpose is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I believe that purpose is found when we lay down our lives for others. That purpose is found when we lay down our life for others. And this is why the pursuit of purpose that looks inward and that looks to materialistic things and that looks to yourself is so unfulfilling and it's so short-lived is because you can't find purpose just within yourself. You can't find purpose just by, by trying to feel better or trying to feel more fulfilled, but that true purpose is found when we lay down our lives for others. And that's the call that God gives all of us as Christ followers. And I think oftentimes what can happen is we can get so hung up on trying to find our specific purpose. We can get so hung up on trying, well, what's God's call in my life? What's this thing God wants me to do? What's the direction God wants me to go in in my life? We can get so caught up in trying to find our specific purpose that we can neglect or forget about our general purpose. 
And I believe for some of you here today that you've been struggling with, God, what's my specific purpose? What's my call? What's my roadmap? I need some direction. And God says, you know what? I want to give that to you. But what I need you to do first is to concentrate on the general purpose that I put you here. And that's to low. Are there people in your life that you need to lay down your life for, that you need to give toward, that you need to have that, as we talked about in the offering, that we need to exercise that generosity towards? When we should do that first, before we start to worry about our specific purpose, we need to say, God, help me fulfill my general purpose to lay down my life for others. But I do also believe that God definitely has specific purposes. And specific purposes are things in your life, man, that, that eat you up, that, that just keep you awake at night. Things, injustices in the world, things in the world that you see that make you mad, that, that irritate you, that anger you, and maybe they don't anger someone else. For example, at the end of the month, we partner with uh, St. Francis Community Services, and they're an organization that works with foster care families and foster care children. And for some of you, man, that's your cause. That's your specific purpose. You hear those stories. You see those children in the foster care system, and it eats you up. Man, it consumes you and breaks your heart, and you look at them, and, and you, you, you get all weepy-eyed. You just, it just breaks your heart. Maybe it doesn't break the heart of the person sitting next to you. Maybe the person sitting next to you, they say, man, that's a great cause, but it just doesn't consume me, you know. But I think about the homeless population. I think about people living on the streets. And I just, I, it just drives me nuts. And we got to do something. We got to figure out a way. And, and I got to go. And I got to take supplies. And I got to love on these people. And maybe the person sitting next to you there says, well, that, that's a great cause. And I love that. But you know what gets me is, is people bound by addiction. People who, you know, are, are living lives where they're just chained by drugs and alcohol and substance abuse. And, and that just eats me. I, we got to help them. We got to figure out a way for them to, to gain freedom and to recover. And, and so you see that, that God gives us all different specific purposes. And what your specific purpose may not look like the person sitting next to you, may not even look necessarily like your spouse's, but God gives you that purpose because he does have a specific purpose for all of us. So he has a general and specific purpose. So today we're going to look at the specific purpose. And to do that, I'm I'm not going to be the one to share that with you today. Um, Monica Bosef is here, and and she just has an incredible story of God calling her out of the seat, God calling her out just of of her life and dropping an incredible specific purpose on her. And I want you to hear her passion. I want you to hear her heart and just how God weaves the story of her experiences, of her life, of the things that that she looks at and she could stand it. She's like, Papa, I can stand it no more, you know, and just looking at it and seeing how God weaves that into the specific call and the specific purpose that he placed on her life. So Monica, I want to invite you to go ahead and come on up. Can we give her a hand as she comes? Some of you may remember, uh, it was either last year or two years ago that Monica came and shared her story, but it's been a while. It's such a great story for for her to share, and uh, so we're so excited to have you here today, Monica. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us here, and uh, we're just looking forward to hear what you have to say. Good morning and greetings in the name of Christ from your sister church in Bucharest, Romania. Uh, My husband and I are pastoring a Nazarene church in Bucharest, Romania called the Blessing Church of the Nazarene. I grew up, I was born actually, and grew up in uh, communism in, um, in Bucharest, Romania. And um, <clears throat> I was about um, 19, almost 20 years old, um, and I was supposed to attend a wedding. And um, well, back then, um, you know, the beauty parlors were, um, the spas were not too many. And um, so being a brunette, you know, and um, well-balanced hormonally, I can grow a lot of hair on my legs. So I decided that, well, in order to be able to attend that wedding and, you know, um, 
looked nice, I was going to wax my legs myself. Big deal, right? Well, I had never taken a beauty class, so I have no idea how to do it. I do not have the professional stuff that one should have. But I know that um, back then we were selling um, wax in tin cans in the store. So I got a tin can, uh, placed it on the burner. <clears throat> I found out that actually all you have to do, big deal, is put you know, that hot wax on your legs and just you know, with one swift move, you know, just remove everything. Well, so much better in theory. Um, so I placed that tin on the stove. Uh, the wax is burning hot. Um, and I think, well, with the hair I have, like Amazonian forest, really, you know, just a little bit of, no, I'm going to lay a thick layer of wax. And so literally, it is um, as thick as you put, you know, um, the icing on your cake. And, so, and I think, why just a small spot on my legs, you know? So I literally just covered my legs from my ankles all the way up to my hips in terribly hot wax. Within less than a minute, I look like Robocop because that is hard as a rock on me, and so I cannot even bend my knees. So I walk around the house trying to figure out how am I going to take that off my legs? Well, there's no way you're going to put a, just a piece of cloth and just, you know, do this, you know, very elegant move like, you know, they do at the spa. So here I am scrape, trying to scrape this off with a knife. Well, it does come off, but it comes off because it had been so hot when I initially put it on that it comes off with my first layer of skin. By the time I get to my knees, I look like a freshly plucked chicken, and I am ready to throw up <laughs> with pain. Um, by this time, I've decided I can look like King Kong. Who cares? I'm not going to do anything else on my legs. I'm done. Thank you very much. So I literally, I just stopped up to my, you know, when I got up to my knees. So the, the, the upper part of my um, legs is still covered in hot, you know, in hard wax now. So here's what happened. For the following three weeks, as I walk around the city, you know, that hard wax starts to you know, fall off piece by piece. And as I'm walking on the streets, you know, and I'm shaking my legs, it's like, it really looks like the trail of Hansel and Gretel, you know, except that it looks like poop, you know, and not like, you know, crumbs. And people just share these weird looks. It's like, oh my gosh, she's so young, you know, poor little thing. She can't keep it in. Well, all I can tell you is that nothing grows on my legs anymore. Not even the, uh, the vinegar fly. Um, what I realized when I became Christian is that this is exactly what happens with our lives. At least for me, everything that I was holding dear, everything that was so precious and valuable to me, um, literally had to be removed. Um, he just did it in a much, gen in a much nicer and gentle way that I did it you know, that I did with the wax. But it had to come off. Whatever stuff I thought that was precious for me or important to my life, I realized that it wasn't really. The kind of, you know, whatever I was growing inside of my heart and mind, um, which it wasn't anything nice. Um, my parents divorced when I was four, and um, this is when my father's parents um, came to my mom and asked permission to have me on vacations and on weekends. 
And <clears throat> my mom said, sure, why not? You know, the grandparents are just as much as my parents are. And the little, anyone know at that time that my father's father would start abusing me sexually when I was four. And he kept whispering in my ear that this is a very special kind of love that no one will ever understand. You can tell to people, you can tell anybody, but they'll never get it. On top of this, he would lavish me with very expensive presents, which one could hardly find or you could kill um, over back in communism. He would find these things and, you know, lavish me with them. And everybody around me would look, you know, you know with envy looks and say, good Lord, Moni, you're so lucky. You know, he loves you so much. Well, yeah, if you only knew the price I pay. So I didn't tell anybody because I was convinced that no one would get the special love that he had for me. Though on the other hand, I had my mom's father who was loving me the right way. He was the grandfather that made me the hero of every singer fairy tale you could tell your kids. And not only I was convinced that this is what happens when you're a girl, but I was also confused. So who really loves me? Is this this one who whispers this in my ear? Or is this one? you know, who makes me the hero, you know, who lets people, you know, prisoners free, who, you know, does all, you know, who's fighting the pirates in all the fairy tales. But I was nine when I had an uncle who did the same to me. Now, of course, now that just made it all clear that this is what happens when you're a girl. So by the age of 15, I was loathing my, myself because had I not been a girl, right, these men would have never been tempted. I was 17 when I got raped. And it wasn't because I had some uh, crazy, you know, uh, looking dress on me or anything like, uh, like this. You know, it's usually what people would say. She had been looking for it. Um, no, I had not been looking for something like this. And I had a knife to my throat. So by this time... I know for sure that I'm going to live life the way I want to. I'm going to make my own decisions. And no man will ever have any kind of power or authority over me ever again. And this is where um, my whole life just started going downhill. I lived a very promiscuous life, which led me to four abortions. And this is where my husband found me in 1992, uh, two and a half years after the revolution. Um, we got married two weeks after our first date. He likes to say, it was great, but please don't do the same. I'm like, thank you, honey. <laughs> That's nice. Um, we've been married 25 years, and one of the very first things I told him, don't ever ask me to have an abortion. He never asked why. I never told him why until years and years later. <clears throat> Shortly after we got married, I started working um, with the first Nazarene uh, missionaries to Romania. And one thing um, I knew for sure, a month into my time with them, I came home and I looked Christy in the eye, my husband, and I said, you know what? I'm done. I have no idea what they have, whether it's right or wrong, you know, whether they're sick or terminally ill. I don't know, but I, I have to have what they have. I want to live life the way they do and embrace life and people, and I want to breathe the way they do. Guess what? They never once, for one split second, looked me in the eye to tell me, oh my goodness, you little poor sinner, <laughs> you're heading straight to hell, honey, you know, let's sit down, let, let me take you through the story of salvation. Not once. 
It was actually the way they loved and lived that raised this question. What got into you? I need to have that. If there was one thing that led me, that, um, sorry, that was very clear to me after I accepted Christ in my life was that I'm not meant for mediocrity. There was one thing that was just burning in me. We're not meant. We're, we're, we're not meant for anything little. Because that would be like if you, if you still think this way, if you're in Christ and if you still think that we're meant for little things, well, yes, we, we, we have a lot of little things going on in our lives, you know, very important little things. But our purpose is immense, is great. Our purpose is according to God's majesty and greatness. I, one thing that was burning in me was the fact that, well, as, as a Christian, we're not okay to blend in. We should not be okay with the fact that no one can tell the difference. That no one can say about us, something's different about that person. I don't know what you have, but I, I got to have what you have. That is not okay. It's not okay for us to hide anywhere. Because nowhere in, in our Bibles did you see Christ hiding. Whether it was feeding, teaching, preaching, healing, he never hid. From anyone and anybody, really. There was leper around him, you know, famine, um, you know, crazy possessed people, bleeding, you know, uh, bleeding patients, terminally ill, crazy, angry, hungry, right? Not once did he say, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> okay, I better go hide. <laughs> no, he had his time, you know, where he had to retreat just to you know, spend time with the Father so that he could get more of him and more out into the world. But it wasn't because he wanted to hide. Well, um, this is what I basically told uh, my team. I was the director of a clinic um, that was started by two American doctors. And in 2011, um, after we discontinued the medical programs, I realized that the social programs we were running were good, with good results, but they were so common. Everybody else around the country was doing the same, same kind of programs. And I couldn't live with that. So I just told my team, I'm sorry, but we're going to get together. We're going to start fasting and praying because we're going to be doing something much bigger. It has to be according to God's majesty, to God's greatness. But I have no idea what it is. And so all of a sudden, uh, two things happened. First is that I was, um, literally I got an email from an organization here in America called Men Against the Trafficking of Others, asking us to organize a summer event in raising awareness among men about their role in human trafficking. That is great, if I only knew what human trafficking was back then. So not only did I, didn't I you know, know much about this or anything, but I didn't have anyone to go to and ask. So I asked God again. Now, is this really because I told them, I'm, we're going to pray about this. I have no idea what it is. So I asked God again, is this from you? Is this what you want us to do? I want you to tell me. And he did in the middle of the night. 
I, I was literally awakened by this loud voice that said, yes, do it. So my husband is sound asleep, you know, I wake him up, I'm like, did you hear this? Hear what, honey? Oh my, okay, go back to sleep. <laughs> All right, I got it. So this was first thing. And the second, there was going on night after night after night, is that I, I kept, I, I found myself waking up in the middle of the night, crying, choked by sobs, crying for, crying. Now, and I had no idea, where am I crying for? Well, why am I crying? So God, please tell me. What, what is this? What is this pain that I have in my chest? I can hardly breathe. Show me. And the only thing that he kept showing me was heads down and hands up. And I could feel throughout the whole, you know, image of these heads down and hands raised up in the air, there was such horrible pain that I could feel that I couldn't breathe anymore. And it happened for nights and nights until I had to get up my husband and I told him, I'm done. I don't know what to do with all this pain. I don't know what to do with all these tears. I, I'm done. I'm going to share it with the church. And so um, this is one of the very few uh, benefits you have as a pastor's wife. Every once in a while you get to be behind the pulpit, you know. And, uh, and I told our church that Sunday, <clears throat> hear me well, because I'm not here to ask for your permission. And I'm not here to make sure that you're comfortable with the thought or that you fancy the idea. I'm here to tell you, get ready. These people are going to be here. I have no idea who they are. Don't ask me who they are because I don't know them. <laughs> All I know that they're going to walk out, they're going to walk in these doors one day. And if you're not ready to cry with and for them right now, and if you're not ready to pray with me for them, you're not in the right church. Okay, my husband is somewhere in the back, you know, ready. He's on the verge of a stroke. And three ladies come up to me after the service and said, so just to get it all clear, did you just tell us we're going to work with the whores in Bucharest? No. We're going to work with all the ones in Romania. And if you're not ready to do this right now, Again, go look for another church. And three weeks later, they did not speak to me for three weeks, but it's fine. If they're not the first, they won't be the last. Uh, three weeks later, they came to me and said, Moni, we're sorry. We want to help. What can we do? They were among the first ones who scrubbed windows and, and floors in the shelter before we inaugurated the place. So God confirmed this. He showed me. But what's next, right? There's, I have no idea what, what is to be done, okay? I know, you know, you showed me this. And so I started knocking on doors, government officials. Um, well, first of all, we had to organize the event. And again, I know nothing about, you know, this organization in the States. I know nothing about human trafficking. Um, I have no idea how to do it how to organize an event, you know, specifically designed for men, right? So <clears throat> I went to the city hall and asked for a space because I had very little time to organize it. I had a, you know, less than a week, uh, less than $400, and very little information. 
So I go to the city hall and realize that they actually have lots of spaces that have not been used in years. And I go and I ask, you know, how, what needs to be done to get permission to use the space? And they say, well, it's actually, you have to turn in a written request. Um, and it takes a week until the committee, you know, gets together. And then two more weeks until they have a response for you. Okay, well, this is Tuesday afternoon. We're supposed to have the event on Saturday morning. There's no way I can fit three weeks. You know, with all my broken meth, you know, I still can't put three weeks in four and a half days. But I walk out the city hall. I turn in the written request, and I walk out the city hall, and I say, God, is all yours. There's nothing that I can humanly, you know, humanly speaking that I can think of that I can do. So it's all yours. So very next morning, I get a wake-up call from the mayor's office telling me that I need to be there because the head of the committee looked over the request on the day before. Ours had become a priority, and they want to meet with me that day. So the first thing I am told as I walk in the room, um, they say, Ms. Boss, if you're late. Well, actually, I'm 10 minutes before scheduled time. Oh, no, you're late. You should have been here two years ago. We've been expecting you. So we had the event. It went, it went really well. But then again, what do I know about this? So I literally knocked on doors and different government institutions. I went to the Department for Fighting Organized Crime and the National Agency for Fighting Human Trafficking. And I went to speak with the head of the heads. And I asked the question, is human trafficking a problem in Romania? And if yes, how big? And what is the greatest need our country has that no one wants to address? No one has the guts or the imagination to, to address. And they all said the same, an emergency shelter. We don't have a place, a safe house, where right after we rescue victims or they escape themselves, we can take them to. Well, are you sure? <laughs> yes. All right. Well, this is, listen me well. Hear me well. If that's the greatest need, this is what will open. But it's going to be the best. Don't ever come to me to say, lower the standards or compromise your principles, because it's never going to happen. They're not ours, they're God's. If you have a problem with them, take it out to God. Um, so we, we sold the clinic, but we were still looking for the best location. What I realized in between these, you know, um, things is that, you know, What's, what do you think is more important, you know, vision or resources? What, what, what is your impression? Resources will always follow the vision. Always. If we have a calling, if we, have, if we know our purpose, if we have a vision, and we say, thank you, God. Thank you, really, I appreciate you getting me involved in this, you know, and the trust you poured into me. But, you know, <laughs> sorry, here's the list. Here's all the stuff that we need to get before you want me to get into that. I think Apocalypse will find you still holding up your list. I knew for sure that we were going to start working with the survivors even before we had the money to start the program. We had the money to, you know, we sold the clinic, so we had the money to buy the new location and to fix it up. But there was no money to hire the team to, you know, because this is what the law requires, right? To have the program up and running, to have it all furnished, to have it all equipped, you know, 
for this to be actually not an institution, but a home these survivors have never had. So we got the, we got the, the shelter. We cleaned the shelter, but there, it was butt naked. So what do you do with it? I had you know, two uh, friends from Germany visiting Romania at that time, and they said, so when are you going to open? Well, this is December 2012. I said, I don't know. <laughs> uh, as soon as we have some furniture in. Well, do you have it? No, because I, I don't have any money for it. Well, um, okay. So they go back to Germany. And two weeks later, they call me and say, um, Moni, you really need to come up here ASAP. Because <laughs> we're like up to our eyeballs in stuff. All they did when they went back to Germany, they put up an ad in their local newspaper um, just talking about, you know, this emergency shelter that was going to be open. Okay, so here's what I said. When they, when they asked me when am I going to open, we only talked about furniture. Never once did we say that we didn't have carpets, lamps, curtains, dishes, silverware, towels, you name it. Everything that you have and use, you know, in a home when you move in, right? We never said anything about this. God is my witness. I was getting emails from, from these two friends and pictures. And here is how, you know, people do was donating the stuff, that were donating the stuff. They took pictures of their kitchen cabinets, opened the doors, took pictures with everything that was inside. We got everything from a needle to couches and bookcases and carpets and curtains and dishes and pots and pens until we had to give away some because we, would have, we could have had three more shelters open with the stuff we got. So we opened the shelter and, uh, in early 2013. And the government officials come and see the place, and they look everywhere, and they come downstairs, and um, they said, Ms. Bosef, congratulations. It's amazing. It's the best place, you know, that we've ever had. Um, however, we believe it's too good. We believe it's a little too much. So I'm like, well, <laughs> uh, who are, basically you're telling me that if, God forbid, it were someone in your family, your loved one, your kids, or your niece or nephew or mother to be trafficked, you would want that person to come to me, right? Because you're in the best place our country has. But then what? You tell me, you take me aside and say, Moni, you're giving too much to my loved one? It's just too good for my kid? Well, no, because we can't really put it this way. Uh-huh, why not? What's the difference between my loved one and somebody else's loved one whom I haven't met yet? You tell me. I said, if you have a problem with this, I told you whose standards and principles run this place. If you have a problem, take it up to God. But you only have two options, take it or leave it. Oh, we'll take it. Well, then shut up and let's get the job done. <laughs> I told you that not for one split second when I came to Christ, uh, did they look at me and say, ah, oh, Here's what's going to happen to you, and here's what we're going to do to fix you up, and da-da, the story of salvation, nothing. So I knew for sure 
that one of the golden rules we have at the shelter is that you're never, never, whether volunteer or staff, you're never allowed to walk in the shelter and look at our survivors in the eye and say, oh my Lord, oh honey, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so honored, you know, because you know, God is so good. Jesus loves you. You say these words, you're out the door and you're never coming back. However, you have our permission, freedom and authority to love that person and serve that person until you're out of breath. You can fall flat to the ground and still serve that person. Because it's not even on the, you know, your second, third, or fourth day into doing this when they literally turn around and scream in your face, what is wrong with you? Stop it. Stop loving me. Look at me. Do you see me? Do you see what I've done? Do you know what I've been through, what I, was, what I had to do? Stop loving me. There's your chance. You want to tell your story? You want to tell people why you love the way you, li you love? Go ahead and do it. Tell them that the golden rule, that the only request I have of you, whether you're volunteer or staff, is this. Whatever you receive from God, when you open your eyes this morning and walk up, Whatever you received with this hand, graciously and abundantly, which in my case was nothing but unconditional love, grace, and mercy, that is exactly what I want you to give away with the other. Nothing else. You think it's hard? Seriously? Are they called? Do they have their names on you, on them? Do they have my name written all over them? Is this Moni's unconditional love or Dan's grace or Kim's mercy? Really? So it says God all over them. They have God's DNA in them. And we still have a hard time giving away something that's not ours. Help me out. That's all I ask of you. They get to ask you this, and then you tell your story. Four days, I, three days, sorry, I did this to one of our survivors. On the fourth day, as I walk in the shelter, she's darting out the door to give me a bear hug. She puts her head on my shoulder and whispers in my ear, I love you, but I never said these words before. I never heard them before. She's 23. She never heard these words before. She knew about one kind of love, but she never actually encountered love. Another rule we have at the shelter, no questions asked. You want to find out the spectacular, the sensational? Turn on your TV at 5 o'clock news. You get plenty of sensational stuff. And um, another golden rule that we have is about giving. Um, a lot of people were touched and are touched when we talk about, you know, our survivors and the beauty, the beauty that's within these people. And we started working with adult women. Uh, shortly after that, we were referred the largest case of child pornography and child trafficking in the history of Romania. Uh, shortly after that, we started working with men. Cases of men who had been trafficked were referred to us. Uh, then Filipino women trafficked for domestic work to Romania. Uh, now forced marriages. Um, so our work all of a sudden expanded. And one thing 
I, I notice is that people are always touched. I've never had one person that I talked to about this or presented the, pro, you know, the program who wouldn't say to me, wow, wonderful. This is, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for, you know, doing this. You know, even tears shed and so on. Um, and people would say, um, well, I, I want to I give. I want to, you know, I want, a lot of people would say, I want to donate stuff. Fine. It's great. But look at the stuff. Is it good enough for your kids to still wear it? Would you give it as a present to your best friend? No? Well, guess what? You can keep it. Is it something that you would like to get to give to your kid for Christmas? Or would you like, you know, to get that thing for your birthday? Then yes, we'll take it. It is good enough for them. If it's not according to the gifts you got from God today, keep it. Don't give it to anybody. Not even to yourselves. God has given us our best. His best, sorry. In everything, he showed us excellence in everything. He was never mediocre. He never hid. He was always excellent. His generosity was always perfect. So why, if we claim to be of him and for him and walk hand in hand with him, why do we set our standards so much lower than his? Why are we okay with this? If we say, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, I belong to you. Yes, you have ownership over me. But please don't ask me to do this. <laughs> Sorry, but it's like, no, I don't think I can be as generous as you are. You know, no, I don't think I can love the way you do. Well, of course you can't. That's why we keep on getting his grace and love and mercy every day. So that we'll fill up. And another thing that um, I realized is that a lot of people say, well, what about me? You know, I, I want to do something. I want to do something for God, but, you know, I, I don't think I'm age appropriate. You know, I'm either too young or too old or too in the middle. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Well, let me tell you this. Um, in February of this year, I got a call from uh, the vice mayor of a small town up north. And she said to me, um, listen, I, I don't know anything about human trafficking. Um, <clears throat> I've been asking around. I have this case in my small town. Um, and I had to look it up and just Google it, you know, to see if this, you know, are these some signs of human trafficking? And I, I don't know. But your name kept coming up, you know, as I Googled, you know. You know, people involved in fighting human trafficking and so on in Romania. <clears throat> so I've, I've got your number, and I need you to help me. Um, here's this lady that I have in my small town, and with her seven-year-old son. And this is, you know, what I saw um, happening with her and to her. What do you think it is? I said, well, yes, actually, you're right. These are very clear signs that she's being trafficked. Um, I said, tell me where you are, and... Um, she said, well, first of all, what can I do? So I said, well, <clears throat> you have to find a way to go to her house where she's at. And if the trafficker isn't there, um, if he's there, just pretend that you were there to uh, tell her that she didn't get her change when she left the store. If the trafficker isn't there, then find a way 
to tell her that all she needs to get is her son and their IDs, their documents. I, that's it. Nothing else. They can be butt naked. I don't care. Have them come with you. And we'll come and pick them up from your place. And an hour later, she calls and says, um, hey, we got it. We're, we're. I'm like, what? She said, yeah. Uh, me and my 72-year-old friend, you know, talked about this. And my 72-year-old friend said, no, I'm going to go over to their house. I'm going to talk to, you know, to her. And a 72-year-old woman who actually never met this girl, never met her son. And so she went there. The trafficker was not, in a, you know, at home. Um, she, you know, they got the mother and the son, their IDs who were now hiding in the 72-year-old lady's apartment. And so I said, okay, well, you know, have them there until we, we come. And she said, what? No, you're crazy? No, we'll wait until midnight when there's this bus, you know, that goes, you know, all the way to Bucharest, and we'll bring them, you know. She, my friend said she'll come with them and bring them to you. You can't have a 72-year-old woman, you know, travel through the night, you know, on a bus, just to come down to Bucharest. I said, no, no, my friend said she's happy to do it. So her 72-year-old friend got on the bus at midnight with this survivor and her 7-year-old son, got to Bucharest <clears throat> at 5.30 in the morning. My colleague, who was on duty that night, went, you know, to pick them up, and he invited, you know, this lady to come to the shelter to have a coffee, you know, just to rest for a few hours. And she cut his face, looked him in the eye, and he said, no, honey, Praise God, they're safe. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to know, that they're safe in your own hands. Well, I'm good now. I'm going to go back home. She hopped on the bus, went back home. Another five and a half hours drive. 72-year-old woman. Really? Age is an issue? I don't even know her health problems, but I'm sure she wasn't as healthy as, you know, some of our 15, 20-year-olds. <laughs> You think you're too young? Really? Take it up to God. You think he doesn't know when he gives you a purpose? When he calls you by name? Do you know the beauty of the um, sake cups? Sake is a drink, the Japanese drink. And um, so they're, they're, these are uh, made of very fine porcelain. They break easily. Um, there's actually, a, you know, the story has two endings. Um, so they break easily, and what the Japanese do, unless, you know, the, the, the glass is totally shattered, um, they take all the broken pieces to a guy who restores them by using gold dust. He has gold dust that makes into, make, makes into a paste, and he glues all the pieces together. Two things happen. He gets to restore some cups, literally, to perfection. You can, you can hold the cup up into the light, and you can't even see the, the fissure lines, okay? On the other hand, there are the other sake cups where you could see the, the, the cracks, you know, and you could see the, the gold paste, okay, that it looks like cement, you know, in between bricks, Okay, this is how you see it. Either, either way, either way, these cups become so precious and so valuable to the owners that it is their pride 
to show these cups to you. They, they, they actually boast, you know, here's my broken cup, you know, restored with gold dust, with golden dust. I read that and I thought, what are we? Were there some still display signs of where the cracks have been and where Christ restored them with, their, with his gold dust? Or some of, you know, some of us don't show them. I don't know, and I don't care. All I care is that we have all been restored by his golden dust. Don't we let forget this for one second. It is not us. It is Christ in us. He's the one who put us together. He's the one who made us the way we are today. Whatever shape and form we have. Right? This is the beauty of what we take in Christ and with him to our survivors, to the people we come in contact with. My prayer for you and for us is that may Christ's gold dust that put you together shine in and through you so that people will always know who you are, where identity is, and the great purpose you're doing what you're doing for. Thank you.